Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Leslie Smith, a PhD candidate and teaching assistant at the University of South Carolina. Leslie Smith, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So should I call you Leslie? You should call me Leslie. Yes. Okay, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a title, so Leslie is great. All right, perfect. So uh, I'm really excited to talk with you today. And the name of the chapter that we're going to be discussing is Silence in the Foreign Language Classroom, the Emotional Challenges for L2 Teachers. This was written by yourself and Dr. Jim King. Uh, for people who have been listening for a while, you might recognize that name. Um, and he, I also interviewed him on Citation 27. Um, I've been reading a lot of his stuff uh, recently. And that's how I came across your name. So it seems uh, that you and uh, oh. Dr. Jim King have published quite a few articles and chapters. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, he, we will probably, we can talk about this more in detail in a bit, but he was my advisor for my master's degree. So that's how, long ah. story short, that's how I, and yeah. I see. Okay. So, um, and again, this is a chapter that was published in the book, Emotions in Second Language Teaching, Theory, Research, and Teacher Education from 2018. Um, all right, before we get into your background, um, I just want to kind of tell you and, and the listeners, so I was doing a lot of research with language learning anxiety and uh, heart rate and, and wearable fitness monitors and all this stuff, but I've taken a real sharp turn. So it's kind of interesting. Oh, okay. I, I, uh, it's interesting doing a podcast because maybe there's some delays and, and I, I, of course, record a lot of these way in advance before I release them uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but sometimes I get emails from people, um, are you still interested Are you still interested in doing studies with EEGs? Are you still interested in all this? So I've, I've taken a sharp turn. Um, I've actually changed universities. I've changed advisors. I've changed programs. And I've changed... Oh, wow. And I've changed my research interest. And um, in fact, what I'm what I'm really interested in now is the effect of learner science on teacher well-being. And um, oh. so this was one of the first – I'm really kind of digging into – I'm at the very beginning stages of my PhD. And this is one of the first things that I kind of targeted that kind of falls into – what I'm, what I'm interested in studying for the PhD. So, um, I'm in the very beginning oh, okay. of it. And as I'm reading this chapter and I've read through it a few times, I remember there was a few chapters, um, in, in, in my previous focus, one of them was this article by, uh, Peter McIntyre. Uh, I think it, I can't remember the name. It was an article or a chapter where he was just summing up what's, what's been going on with language learning anxiety, past, present, future. And I almost called it like a 10 post chapter or an article because I just kept coming back to it and I would use it a lot to structure my, my literature reviews and stuff like that. So I guess this is a long way to say from reading this chapter a few <laughs> times and then looking at the citation list and even uh, lining up some of the chapters and papers I was going to read and I see them in the citation list, I feel like this could be sort of a 10 post chapter for me where I might keep coming oh, back to. Um, oh, I'm really glad you put it that way. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be reading this multiple times, coming back to it. Um, you know, the chapter itself is not that long, but wow, there's it's a lot of not, stuff in it. It's not long, and you know, I um, maybe it's because I myself am a PhD student, and I get really winded by you know, you know, this we have to read a lot as part of our job. And I get really winded by reading uh, chapters that are more than maybe 20 or so pages. And I think that, um, you know, if you can say what you can say, what you need to say, and have the important stuff in uh, 20 pages or less, I think that's probably a sign that, uh, you know, you know what you're talking about and you're trying to communicate as effectively as you can, uh, to your readership. So I'm all for writing and reading short, shorter <laughs> chapters. So that yeah. was intentional. Well, all right. So we'll, we'll get into the chapter 
in in a moment. But um, I'm interested in, in people's backgrounds. Now, you kind of gave a tease of how you met Jim King is that he was your advisor for your master's degree. So does that mean that you studied with him at uh, Leicester? Yeah. So, um, well, should I get into my background now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you can either start, work your way backwards or start from the beginning. Uh, either way, whatever works for you. Okay. Well, I'll just start. Uh, I'll work my way, I guess, backwards and then forwards, if that's okay. I like that. You I just like that storytelling. Yeah. Jim. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Uh, Jim was my advisor at the University of Leicester. I did my master's in TESOL and applied linguistics there in 2013. Um, and uh, we, uh, I was really interested in his work on silence, which I'm sure that you've read a lot on. Mm-hmm. And um, specifically, like, kind of sociocultural approaches to language teaching and language acquisition. And so, um, he was my advisor. He was wonderful. Um, and after um, the MA, I took a break. He advised me. He said, I should get my PhD. I said, I don't want to go back to school ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, uh, and so I taught um, here in South Carolina and I taught in Indiana in the United States for um, five years before I decided to go back and get my PhD. What did you, so, what did you um, teach? Uh, so I taught, um, English as a second language, um, for at the university of Notre Dame, um, which is in South and Indiana. And I also taught for community-based programs, um, through public school districts in both Indiana and South Carolina. Wow. Yeah. So lots of different, lots, they're two very different, uh, contexts, but, um, I was very lucky to get experience from both of them. So, and what, what made you decide to go back and get the PhD? Oh, wow. (laughs) I ask myself that every day. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, so I guess, you know, I kind of thought, I wanted to know more about the learners that um, I'm teaching, and um, there are professional development opportunities in the public school system here in the States, mm-hmm. um, but it just wasn't really getting at the kinds of questions that I was interested in. A lot of the professional developments were geared towards sort of... Um, you know, just like how to help learners better acquire this particular form of language. Um, I wasn't as interested in that at the time. And so I thought, well, maybe the best way to learn more about my students is by going back to school. And so, um, yeah, so, so I went back and got my PhD, um, with the intention of coming back to teaching when I was done. So, and how far along are you on your PhD? I graduate in December, so I'm defending this fall. Wow. So pretty close. <laughs> yeah. And, and what was your uh, what was your thesis for uh, for my master's or for uh, my dissertation? Well, let's uh, well maybe maybe both. What was your were they connected or did you change course like I did? I changed course a little bit um, for my, so my MA thesis was on um, a type of silence called wait time, which we refer to in the chapter, mm-hmm. um, wait time in uh, second language classrooms um, and kind of how um, the amount of time that a teacher takes after they ask a question, uh, how that can impact um, classroom interaction. Mm. Uh, so that my MA thesis. And then, um, for my PhD, I kind of, uh, I swerved really hard, kind of like you did. (laughs) Um, and something more, um, with more, less effective and more like cognitive psychological aspects of, um, language acquisition. Um, so it has to do with um, different types of um, computer-assisted language learning and how that impacts different cognitive behaviors. Um, but, you know, as I'm, you know, been finishing my dissertation this past year, I always keep coming back to 
um, the more effective aspects of language learning and language mm. teaching. So I think that is definitely going to be in my future. Um, so, so yeah, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the way it turned out just for whatever reason, I don't need to get into the details, but I never really got to do what I wanted to do in my master's. I, I actually did a master's in psychology. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking, oh, okay. and the project I want to do, I still could do. And I'll maybe, I maybe I'll, and I'm, and I hear this from a lot of people doing PhDs, you know, you have all these little projects you kind of put in the drawer and sometimes it doesn't fit oh, okay. into the PhD thesis or you, you just can't do it. So there are, or you there, don't, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Or go ahead. you don't have like, you know, uh, an advisor there who can kind of, who has that expertise, you don't have the resources. I, yeah. Uh, there are lots of reasons why uh, you have your little projects that you just keep <laughs> to do later. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about doing that when this is all said and done. Right. But I'm, I'm happy to kind of switch gears and do something, do something new uh, one of the, one of the reasons why I decided to switch gears is I'm, I kind of want to learn about some things to help myself, you know, and that, that, that could sound selfish, but I just decided oh. if I'm going to spend so much time on this next part of my life and reading stuff, I felt like I'd kind of <laughs> hit the wall as far as the correlation between silence or an anxiety or just ang lots of, I was focusing way too much on anxiety and I kind of got burned out on it. And I realized, oh. this, and I was kind of focusing more on silence and anxiety. Uh, that's what I was thinking about doing. And I just thought, you know what? I need to open this up a bit. And I don't, I don't want to speak for, for Jim King, but I get the impression he kind of, just looking at, the, the, you know, this, this, this chapter is written in 2018. You go back and you read some, I think um, you referenced another one of his chapters that was written in 2016 about emotional labor. <laughs> Um, yes. So it's, I almost kind of see, it's funny when you start doing a PhD or you have these ideas and you know, you're definitely not the first. So I look, I almost look back at his track and I say, okay, well, I think he probably had the same sort of idea where he was into silence. He was looking at effective factors and then he actually made the shift to teacher emotional labor too. So, um, I'm not sure if he had, he had thought the same sort sorts of things, but I'm definitely more interested on the teacher side. Um, and then when this PhD is done, I'm probably, I'll probably get burned out on that and go back to something else. So I, I don't know. Is that what, is that kind of the way you, do you think you might go back to what you were doing in your master's after this? Or? I think so. I think so. I think that I'm, I've kind of hit a point where, um, I have found out, you know, and I think that good researchers and good scholars, um, do this and their research evolves. Um, like Jim, for example, mm -hmm. um, I think when I can only speak for myself, but I think that when I started the PhD and you might feel the same way, you feel like pigeonholed a little bit and you feel like because you're, you have limited time, you have the pressure to, pick a topic, collect data, finish, uh, all within, I don't know how long your PhD is. Ours are five years here typically because mm -hmm. we have to teach in the States and get that experience as well. But I think you feel like you can't go back and you feel like if you spread yourself too thin, then you're going to lose sight of your dissertation or whatever topic you're researching at the time. But I think it's good to be interested in lots of different things because we don't exist in a vacuum and mm. the things that uh, our learners face don't exist in a vacuum either. So I think having diverse experiences and perspectives is important. And the only way you can get that is if you uh, read and uh, experience lots of different things. So I, I think it's good. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is interesting because when I was having these, and I still am having these, these preliminary uh, meetings. Now I've been accepted into the program, but we're sort of crafting what we're going to do. And mm -hmm. um, it's funny, we're having these meetings and, and 
and one one advisor was kind of saying, well, what about the student side? And I said, I don't care about the student side at all right now. I'm just not interested. I've already gone. I've, I mean, it's a weird, it was a weird thing to say, but I kind of convinced them that I do not, I really want to focus on the teacher side. And, 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 and again, I know yeah. teachers are affected by students. So students will play into it. But I was trying to say that, look, I am want, I want to investigate the teacher perspective of silence and how it affects, you know, what emotional impact it affects them over time. How does it affect well-being? And that's something that comes up in the chapter, right? There's all of these things at play. We can't possibly pigeon uh, pigeonhole all of them. Um, and even in your like your 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 literature review, which was great, uh, the the first section of the chapter, you sort of mentioned DST, um, dynamic systems theory, but you don't spend yeah. too much time talking about it. You just you just kind of like sum it all up. And I kind of love that. Where I guess yourself and and uh, Jim King said, look. This is the theory that kind of makes sense for us, and we're going to go with this. And um, it's very hard to describe dynamic systems theory in like twenty sentences, but you did it. So yeah, it's, me. <laughs> it's very hard uh, to do that. But yeah, I think that um, I think focusing on the teacher side, like you said, is is something that you might call it selfish, but I don't. You know, I don't know how it is where you are, but in the U.S., we are facing like a massive teacher shortage. Mm. Um, and uh, a lot of that um, is, you know, attributed to the pandemic and, you know, all of the related problems that happened because of it. Um, but I think this type of research is going to be really important in the future because, you know, what I hear from all of my friends who have been in teaching, you know, I have friends who've been in teaching for 10 and 15 years and, you know, they left this year or last year mm. or are currently leaving and they say I'm burned out. I'm exhausted. I can't, I'm emotionally spent, you know, saying these things that, you know, are, uh, effective and not anything to do with, you know, what we typically think of as why teachers quit. The pay is not good. The students are poorly behaved, you know, things like that. It's all, it's all emotional. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think you say it's selfish. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I well, think you should be easier on yourself. Well, and I that's, think it's, I think it's, <laughs> and, and that's the, um, that's the thing I'm really interested in. Um, I think I read, I read some book. I can't remember what it was. But it was talking about – I can't even remember what the book was about. It was probably some philosophy book. But it was – at one point, it was talking about conflicts you get in with people. Mm. So the idea was, mm. let's say you wake up in the morning and you get into a big argument with your, your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever. And um, mm -hmm. and then you get you – will, you will most likely be more fatigued during the course of that day. Just because you had yeah. this this conflict, right? So then I kind of thought, you know, reflecting on my own teaching practices when I've had, you know, I've been, I've been kind of trying to craft this idea where a teacher might look at their schedule over the course of the week and you, you might ask a teacher, well, what's your favorite class and what's your least favorite class and why? And a lot of times when you talk to mm -hmm. teachers like, oh, this, this class is a dream to teach. They're lovely. They, they give me energy. And this class, it's like pulling teeth and I'm exhausted afterwards. And then I kind of thought right. it, on a micro level, these individual interactions with students with, with silence. Um, and then how, how much mm. now the teachers you're talking about, maybe they get burned out for a different reason. But I was just thinking mm. like over time and you know, even, you know, over the course of a day or a course of a week, um, how much does do these incidences of silence affect teachers? Um, so that's what I'm kind of looking at now. And and anyone who's kind of interested in what I'm talking about should probably read this chapter because, oh, um, I mean, this is, again, I, I don't say this that often. Again, this is probably, so everyone should read this because you actually did a lot of hard work on this. I mean, you, you, you grouped, um, you grouped silence into, into three, three levels or, um, what did you call them? Yeah. Three, three so, forms like, of effective silence. Like, how did you, how did you work on that? So I 
like I said, I really like chapters. Gem and I kind of crafted the outline of this together. Mm-hmm. And I think we both really like um, chapters in which the reader can kind of very clearly see where everything is going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like having kind of like a map um, to point them in the right direction. And this, this book also was kind of made for less for academics and more for practitioners as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's not super theory heavy. It's very kind of, um, here are three types of silence that you might encounter in the classroom. Here is how might that might affect you. And here are some strategies that maybe you can use that, um, you know, might be able to mitigate some of that negative emotion that you're feeling because of it. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, that's kind of how we thought about it at the time. Um, but, you know, as I was uh, looking at it and as I was going through it, I wish we would have said, instead of effective silence, I wish we would have said negative. I wish mm. we would have put some that there was um, there's like a kind of negative tilt to it, maybe not in terms of the learner and how the learner is using the silence to advocate, potentially advocate for themselves and to show to be true faithful to their own emotions, but in the way that it kind of most of the time kind of makes the teachers feel, um, and how it impacts the emotions of the, um, the teacher. So I wish we would have said negative because there are other types of silence that are good. You know, I tell (laughs) my students, um, so I teach at the university and, uh, I make several jokes to my students that they're tired of hearing about silence every year. One of them is uh, whenever I ask a question and no one says anything, I'll say, you know, um, you know, it's okay. Don't feel awkward. There are lots of different kinds of silences. There Mm -hmm. are processing silences. There are um, happy silences. There are content silences. There are contemplative silences. And so we all just need to be okay with, uh, with, 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 uh, being quiet sometimes. And so my students, like I say this, oh gosh, all the time. And by the end of the year, I'll ask a question. And if it's silent for more than a couple of seconds, one of my students will say, I think that this is a processing silence. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that this is like an awkward silence, Leslie, like we gotta, we gotta figure this out. So, um, yeah. And that was, um, I think that's been the main focus of the research of one of my advisors, uh, Dat Bao. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Um, he wrote yep. uh, a book on on silence and reticence, and he does he does a lot of uh, research on positive silence. So mm-hmm. almost like a, like you said, like this silence duality, um, mm. and then and then almost deeper. And again, going back to DST, then, you know, what's happening at what moment, these things are all playing off each other. So as I'm kind of, you know, I have an idea of what I want to, I have my research questions, I'm, I'm, I'm building my design, but then you have to work backwards and, and put it all together. So I'm throwing all these ideas on the paper, I'm, I'm writing down, you know, uh, all these things that causes of uh, Japanese for, for me, my focus, Japanese language learner silence. So why, why, why would a Japanese language learner be silent in the classroom? Right. So there's all of those reasons mm. and then, okay. And there's positive silence, there's processing and there's negative silence. And then, and then here, then I read your chapter and I was like, Oh, well, interesting. They grouped. So you group silence of embarrassment, fear, and anxiety as one, you put all, all the stuff into that group. And then you did, um, silence of annoyance anger and resistance into that group and then silence of disengagement i was like okay this is kind of interesting i can kind of i can kind of think about it i'm not sure if i'm going to go 100 percent in that organization but the reason why i appreciate this chapter is i like chapters where you can bounce stuff off of right where you can you can read it and you can say okay well i can use that to make this argument or i can cite this and I can push off in this way. Like this is again a good chapter that mm. you can push, and you you have a whole section on mediation, um, where you just That's kind of funny. list yeah. you list them all. But it's as a researcher, you said, well, I could test them. I could test, you know, which, which. So again, this is a really strong chapter, and I'm really glad I found it. Um, cool. And again, That's this is why people bad. should take time to to name their chapters in there. Uh, their chapters and their articles succinctly so people can find them. I remember when I was doing the masters in psychology, 
I, I just felt I would I I would I feel like I would I would get lucky to find an article because it just wasn't named properly. And I was like, why oh, did, why yeah, psychologists are notoriously, you know, very long title colon secondary, <laughs> very long title, and it's like, come on. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, so um, I understand. I guess that's a long way to say like I'm going to be. There's lots of interesting things that I, I don't know, but I'm I'm in this. You know, you're you're almost finished your PhD. I'm just starting. I'm just in the process mm-hmm. of trying to. How do my how how am I going to organize how I'm going to think about all this stuff? Um, but I do oh, know gosh. what I I want to. I do know what I want to test and what I want to study. But then when you have your uh, advisor saying, well, you know, what framework do you want to, do you want to use and which, you know, all, all so I, I just, I need to answer. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm in this, this happens to me every now and again, um, hasn't happened in a while where you just feel like you're standing underneath a 20 foot wave and, oh, and so I completely, <laughs> yes, I completely, uh, have felt that way before. And I will say the framework was also the most difficult part for me, hmm. um, I think, I don't think you're alone in that. I think it's just because we don't have, as PhD students, we don't have the breadth of knowledge that a seasoned scholar does. And, you know, um, we don't really know yet how our ideas fit into broader narratives sometimes. And so mm. I think that's where advice would be really important for, for helping you kind of choose your framework. And I think, you know, you can choose a framework and, not 100% adhere to all of the tenets of that framework. You know, you can say, uh, I wasn't, you know, this dissertation is kind of inspired by this, you know, you can take bits and pieces from other things, but that I, that was definitely the most difficult part for me, hands down was just saying, okay, well, how am I going to frame this in a way that people will know, like situating your research into the broader narrative. Mm. I mean, of course that, most difficult part. So how did you, so what kind of framework did you, well, take us through your process of choosing a framework or, um, cause now you have to defend it, right? You have, you, you haven't done your, your Viva yet? No, I Viva? haven't. It's Viva? Going, Viva? I, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we, we call it an oral defense. Okay. So, but, but, so I don't know how to pronounce Viva or Viva, but I have heard that term before. Um, yeah, so, so, oh, that's a good question. Um, I read a lot of, um, I read a lot. And whenever I found a paper that I felt like um, really, uh, this is going to sound like not scientific at no, all. go for but, it. <laughs> Whenever I found a paper that kind of spoke to me and I thought, like you said, like a, like a 10 post paper and you said, okay, yeah, like this, this, this person has it figured out this, I, I, this paper, um, is giving me what I need. I would kind of file it away in a separate folder on my computer, Mm. um, for like, you know, my special papers. And every now and then I would go back and see if any of those papers kind of had anything in common. Uh, and I got to a point where I was saving a lot of papers that adhered to a certain theoretical framework. And I said, okay, well, uh, I guess this is what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, that, and I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's not a, the most scientific way to go about it, but that's, uh, that was helpful for me at least was, was compartmentalizing it like that. Well, and I I don't know if you you've been following this podcast series at all, but that, that was the main reason why I started this podcast. Uh, there was, I was, I was doing a lot of reading again in the, in the masters, uh, in psychology, I was doing a lot of reading about the, um, the Yerkes Dodson law. So the, 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 you know, the bell curve where what, what amount of stress influences performance. So, uh, and this, you know, this, this law has been cited in psychology all the way back to 1908. And I read this paper mm-hmm. from 1994 at just kind of, again, it was kind of like that Peter McIntyre 2018 paper. So it had just summed everything up very clearly. And this guy had written this paper um, and it just summed the whole, summed the whole history up and how the, 
permutations, how it's changed over time, how people have interpreted it. And when you come across a paper like that, you're just, you're almost so thankful. You almost want to thank the, the writer. It's like, thank you. Thank you. For not making me read all of this. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, so again, I was really happy to find this chapter so early on in my research. And maybe one reason is, I don't know, what, what do you think? Is this still sort of an under-researched field? I know the amount of research has increased since you've written this paper. But do you still feel like this, this field of you know, the effects of learner silence and the emotions of teachers and well-being, do you still feel, feel it's kind of an under-researched area or – like reflecting I can back only on, speak for, yeah. I can I can only speak for the US context. I think in the US it is for sure. I think that um a lot of second language acquisition research, at least here in the United States, traditionally has been kind of like under a cognitive behavioralist approach. Mm-hmm. Um and I, you know, I use part of that for my dissertation. I'm not knocking it. I think it's it's great and it has its uses, but part of me feels like, um, well, where do we go from there? Um, and I think that you're not going to improve. There's only so much improvement of the lives of, um, real learners and teachers that you can do with those kinds of, of approaches. Um, and, I, I don't see a lot of people doing this kind of research over here, and I wish they were. Um, I think it, it might be different um, in other places, um, but that's at least the tradition here. Um, so, and, and like I said, I I think that um, especially now when we have so many people who are leaving teaching because they are just emotionally, you know, brought and, and they, they can't do it anymore. And whenever I tell them, I'm like, oh yeah, you you know that, um, there's this concept called emotional labor. And I like, you know, if I can corner them and kind of (laughs) talk to them about this for, you know, a couple minutes, they'll be like, you know, you can just see like a light bulb going off and they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. And so for me, that is where that is why I do research is to take what I do and to, you know, give people to, to make people's lives better. I mean, that sounds like kind of corny and whatever, but, um, you, you have to do it for the people who you're researching, I think. And I think that's true in all fields. Um, so, yeah, Yeah, I, I mean, I vividly remember why I went down my previous research path because, I was faced with learner silence. You know, I was sitting in a room, mm. I was assessing uh, people's abilities in Japan and I was, mm-hmm. I had to, I've told this story before, but I was working for this company where when you'd have prospective um, students to the language school, what, what we do is they'd come in and you do an assessment for about 15 to 20 minutes. Then you go out and meet with the staff and you choose a book based on their level. Then you do uh sort of a mock lesson based on their textbook for about 15 minutes or something. Right. And so they were very strict Mm. about how many minutes you had to do the assessment test. So oftentimes I would ask a student, what's your name or something. And they would just give me back nothing. And now I'm thinking, Mm. well, well, they're a beginner or what, what what am I going to do with this? And so I had to sit in rooms with lots of people in silence for a long period of time. And, um, Mm. and I, and then, after 10 or 15 minutes, some people would, uh, start talking and, oh, that was kind of interesting. And then I gave them like a Likert scale on a piece of paper on a scale of zero to 10, you know, how nervous are you right now? And they would circle 10 and it's like, oh, okay, now you're nervous. And, and so then that's how I started focusing on the learner side, but from the teacher side, like now it's almost interesting. Now I'm just like totally like turned the table. Like I'm like from the teacher side, like that's very stressful. Like I have to sit, oh. now, you know, okay. I found my way out of it. I use some, and then a lot of, some of the strategies you talked about, you know, deep breathing, self-talk, um, th- these things that you can do, um, you know, advancing your knowledge of, of an issue, these types of things. But, but yeah, I mean, 
the when the teacher faces and you 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 had a great uh sentence in in the the chapter you said um you know well towards the end even teachers who regularly mm. face silence often have difficulty in adequately preparing for what can be an anxiety-inducing phenomenon, right? So that's what I said. And particularly novice teachers, they may also find it difficult not to internalize the silence as a reflection of their pedagogy. So that's like Absolutely. a that's a huge that's a huge thing. Um, some teachers take it personally, um, but then the other side is you know facing a lot of silence like that is also just going to cause you more work, whether it's emotionally or or otherwise. And, uh, mm. you also mentioned in the chapter, sometimes, you know, it's not all bad, you know, some teachers yeah. are willing to take the pain, so to speak, to advance themselves or their <laughs> students. Uh, but it is kind of strange that, I don't know, I'm talking way too much in this episode, but it is kind of strange oh, yeah, that, um, it's kind of funny when you do research, right? You're, you're examining something so hard. And then I just kind of like, mm. I can look at that same story that led me down one research path and just totally just turn turn the table and it's like, wow, there's this yeah. whole other world out here. Like I, I kind of got burned out studying about the students. I really did. Well, Took it too and, far. You know, part of that is also just because they're so intertwined, you know, like, um, you know, we kind of have, I think, um, traditionally there has been this idea and a lot of, you know, language education programs still kind of adhere to this idea that teachers are, you know, kind of on one level, the students are on the other level, mm. it's hierarchical, it's um, separate. Um, the teacher asks questions, students respond, teacher asks another question, students respond, you know, that kind of uh, rote kind of pattern. But um yeah, I mean, if you are uh, any person, you know, at least um, I can speak for myself. If I'm in any room speaking to any person and they don't respond to me, you know, um, I'm going to feel a little bit stressed out about that. Did they hear me? Did I say something that offended them? Mm. Did I misspeak? Did I, um, you know, did I say something stupid? And I think that's why I really like um, Ikuko Nakane's book, um, her 2007 book on silence and intercultural communication. I'm sure you've read it. No, or I haven't. Have at least heard it. I, I, oh, I saw you reference a, it in the in the in the chapter. Oh. So it's really so. I think that her book actually shows really well that there is this, um, you know, a part. Uh, from, you know, separately from the teacher just being kind of this, like, uh, I don't know, separate figure from the students, how, um, you know, it's a classroom environment. And there we there we are all of these actors in this classroom environment. And we do things and say things and feel emotions that all of us feel and kind of affect the feelings and emotions of each other. Um, she talks a lot about also, which I think is really interesting about how, um, you know, learners can choose pragmatic actions like silence that can be negatively perceived or cause miscommunications, uh, by their teacher, especially in second language or foreign language classrooms, um, where the teachers and the students might not share the same cultural context. Mm -hmm. Um, and this doesn't just happen with silence. This happens, you know, I remember this happens with, you know, assessments. Um, you know, I've sat in on, I've, I've obviously given a lot of oral tests, oral assessments, and I've sat in and on, on many of them for other teachers. And, um, you know, the way that we perceive, um, you know, communication with our students is informed by our past experience. Um, and I think that, um, for a lot of teachers, uh, especially I, I can't speak for uh, where you are, but here in the U S and a lot of language programs, any kind of pragmatic action that veers from like a, you know, perfect prescriptive kind of, um, you know, uh, 
white native speaker, how, how they would kind of educated native speaker would respond, um, is, is viewed pretty negatively. Um, even things like, you know, we, as we, as native speakers of a language, we can mess up, we can pause, we can have awkward silences, uh, we can have slips of the tongue, but our students can't, you know, like if, if they do that when they're speaking in a classroom, the stakes are just a lot higher for them. Um, and, uh, you know, if they do that, if they pause, if they're silent, if they have a slip of a tongue during a, during an oral exam, their, their grade might be affected. And, um, I don't know. I think that for teachers, it's really important to not only understand, you know, to learn about strategies that are kind of important for helping mitigate negative emotions that may come about, you know, from learner silence, but also, you know, Nakane talks about learning more about, um, you know, reasons for learner silence and, you know, cultural expectations and, you know, personal reasons too, just getting to know your students and, you know, oh, is this student quiet? This student might, might just be a quiet person, you know, might not uh, communicate a lot um, in their native language either. So that was really long-winded, but all of that is to say that um, we all, I think, need to under, I, I think we all need to conceptualize the classroom as just like a shared space where there are lots of us, um, like a shared kind of workspace where we're all facilitating each other to different ends. Um, and I think that doing that might, I mean, for me at least, running my classroom in that way, um, you know, kind of helps me take some of the pressure off of myself. Like, um, we also talk about in, um, you know, you talked about the section on mitigation strategies um, where we kind of just list a bunch of them because we don't really have time to get into a lot of them. Um, I, li I like that, though. About, I, know, like, I, like, I like that. Yeah. Again, it's, when okay. you read a chapter like that, it helps you to think of ideas about ways you can you you can do some experiments or tests or wait, 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 uh, ways to think about right. things. Um, like the, the deep, the deep actor and the surface actor. I never even thought about that. And, um, yeah, I think that you, and I mean, I'm sure you've probably had those experiences as well. Um, where, you know, you either, you know, are kind of doing preventative things to alleviate anxiety, like, you know, changing your mindset. Um, we, we don't talk about that a lot in here, but kind of changing mindset. So like, you know, viewing the classroom as more of like a, facilitative space, um, and, you know, kind of taking some of the heat off of yourself a little bit, like you don't have to be perfect. You know, don't expect your students to be perfect. All of these things, um, planning for your lessons, learning more about your students' backgrounds. All of those are preventative measures, responsive measures like deep breathing, um, you know, meditation, all I've done all of them. And I think, you know, if you're an experienced teacher, you've done, them all well and um, you also you also mentioned another thing in the chapter which is an important thing to say um which maybe some people might not want to admit which is the idea of just doing nothing letting your letting the students silently work totally back off yeah um uh and i have to admit that's something that um is an attractive option especially when you're teaching compulsory uh classes um, right. And then, but then here's the thing again, this is why I feel like the beginning of the PhDs is exciting and also, uh, overwhelming at times is sometimes you feel like your brain's just on the tip of something, right? Cause I feel like in those times, uh, we've all been there where we're saying, you know what? Screw it. They don't want to, they don't want to speak. I'm not going to force them to speak. I'm not going to make this, 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 you know, I don't feel good when this happens. They don't feel good when this happens. And then you totally back off, yeah. right? And then, so what right. happened? What happens then? So then, there's no speaking. Um, so in Japan, that's fine. Students are, are comfortable with that. The teacher, you know, you you don't have to worry about these emotionally charged interactions. But then, then at the mm -hmm. end of the week or the end of the term, how satisfied are you with your job? Probably not very much. Mm -hmm. It's like so. Yes, you've 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 preserved your well being 
you've you've avoided these yeah. these uh, interactions. You've avoided these uh, these things, but it's uh yeah i don't really know where i'm going with that but i would say like i wouldn't say that your teacher satisfaction and then in this chapter you also brought up the idea of identity so then you're saying well who mm-hmm. am i who am i if i'm not if i'm not helping right. them you know yes they have to be here they have to take this compulsory class um but mm-hmm. what am i doing like if i i'm protecting my own well-being am i a teacher anymore that's one thing i didn't think about how you kind of linked it to identity i i, I like that part of the the chapter i had never I never really thought about that before. How that's well, that tied into well-being, first, that right? Was, yeah, that was a very personal <laughs> part that I that I kind of included in there. Um, yeah, be, because it, it is for me, and I think that it is for a lot of teachers. You know, you go through periods where you know you have you know, a great week teaching and you feel like this is what I was meant to do. I'm so fulfilled. You know, I can handle anything that comes my way. Um, you know, all of the negative things that all kind of jobs have the negative parts of teaching that you may not enjoy or maybe don't want to deal with. And then there are some weeks where you're like, you know, I'm, I, I, what am I doing? I talk to, you know, a room. I talk to myself for 50 minutes and then students leave Mm. and there's no indication that I'm having any sort of real impact because I think we're not very good at, um, or at least I traditionally, you know, we, we judge people based on what they say, not really how, um, they're kind of acting, I think, at least in Western culture, I think that's the case. Uh, so, you know, it, it, really the only thing you have to go on if you're a teacher a lot of the time is what your students say and how they act. And if they're mostly quiet, um, you know, that takes out a big part of the equation there. So um, I think you can kind of start to question uh, your identity as a teacher, especially if it's something that you've done for a long time. I know that even experienced teachers feel this way. Um, or I think especially, and especially for new teachers, um, that can be really hard. Um, so, yeah. So, so, all right, well, let's again, so the chapter is silence in foreign language uh, class silence in the foreign language classroom, the emotional challenges for yeah. L2 teachers. And this is in the book, emotions in second language teaching theory, research and teacher education. Um, everyone should definitely read it. Uh, I'd like to kind of finish off the interview because you're finishing off your PhD. Um, uh-huh. do, you, do you have any advice for up and coming researchers as far as, you know, mm-hmm. starting their PhD or ad- advice for people in their PhD? Um, of mm. course, there's a lot of reading. You got to balance your your time, uh, organizing all your articles. How you manage your writing schedule? Or is there any 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 tips you can kind of pass on to the the next uh, group of sad souls who have to go through the process? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, you're just getting started. How's so. that for a lead in? <laughs> is that leading the witness? Right. <laughs> right, a little bit. Uh, but I'll accept it. Um, so I guess I'll, so I guess I I can give a couple of very practical things and one, I guess a couple of kind of like more, you know, uh, existential things. I don't know. Um, so I guess the first like very practical thing that I would say is try to write every day. And, uh, even if it's just a hundred words, even if it's just one page, even if it's something that, you know, as you're writing it, you're going to take out later. I think um, one of the hardest things about writing and getting started was I, I tend to edit a lot as I'm going through the writing process. And that is not really something you can do with a very long dissertation simply mm-hmm. because you don't a lot of the time know exactly where it's going. And so you can't kind of edit on the front end. You have to do all of it on the back end. And so, you know, I found myself getting to a place where I would read and edit the same sentence for 30 minutes. And I was like, I got to stop this. Like, Mm. this is, (laughs) this is, this is, um, 
not manageable anymore. So the best advice that I can give is just write, try to write every day. Even if it's, you know, if it's um, annotating articles for your dissertation, if it's, um, you know, if you want to give yourself, if you get further into the program, giving yourself a page limit, like maybe I'll write one page a day, maybe I'll write two pages a day. Um, and like I said, even if it's something that you think you're going to end up throwing out anyway, just do it because you working through that process and you working through that idea on paper may lead to more ideas that you will keep in the future. So, um, I, I would, that, that is, I think, uh, one practical piece of advice that I can give. Um, yeah, that's again, that you just kind of summed up the way I feel sometimes because yesterday I was spending a lot of time writing a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. Right. And, mm. and I was looking back at your chapter and I was like, Oh, well she grouped it this way, but I'm kind of not thinking about it quite like that. But I just kept writing and then you kind of go for a walk and I guess your mind does some stuff, but yeah, it's, I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that because that's kind of what I was thinking about as well. I was thinking about what I wrote yesterday. I was like, I'm probably not going to, I'm probably not going to, or I'm probably not going to keep it exactly like that, but I'm glad I wrote it down at least. And I can go back and kind of move yeah. some things around or cut. I'm really glad you said that because I, I, I kind of tend to be the same way where you think you need to write it out perfectly, but like you, with a thesis, right? That's just, like that, it's perfect. It's not manageable. You're you're building, you're building a castle, right? You can't you can't have every brick perfect, exactly. right? And nothing is a waste of time. Like I think, especially um, nowadays, you know, we tend to think about productivity in terms of like the product that you're producing, like your output, um, mm. like physical output. Um, but I think that it's really. Uh, I'm trying to get more into the mindset of, um, you know, sometimes I can write for an hour and it might be something that I don't end up keeping. And it wasn't a waste of time, um, because I'm working through those ideas on my own. And maybe, maybe lots of other people, maybe people are listening to that and saying like, wow, that's so insightful. I roll whatever, but you know, it, we all come to these conclusions at different times. And mine was, you know, a year ago <laughs> while I was writing my dissertation. So, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I've taken uh, writing classes and I've, I've heard the same things. Um, like some people, you know, they force themselves to, now I don't take it to this extreme, but I, I, um, I took a writing class and the, the writing teacher, she would, when she couldn't think of things to write, she would just write her thoughts during that time. <laughs> like oh yeah. i can't think of anything oh. to write right now what's going on and she like physically she felt that was necessary to keep the the train kind of moving now i don't feel that exactly yeah. I, I don't feel that exactly i'm kind of more on your side where okay well just write write them out uh write it out whatever you're kind of thinking like work on it i like i like that idea and i guess i get i guess the process pushed you in that way right because your tolerance for yeah perfection or your tolerance for uh fine-tuning stuff it just it just went by the way the wayside because you just realized it just wasn't going to work with the amount of work you have to do no absolutely and like those are all things that you can revise on the back end you know there's there's trying to edit your own ideas as you're kind of figuring out what your own ideas are doesn't really work <laughs> mm. i found out for my so <laughs> Um, so what, what about a uh, balance of reading and writing? Um, I would say that, um, one, uh, really good habit to get into is annotating articles. I don't know if, um, you're in the habit of doing this, but so I kept a separate word document for annotating articles for my literature review. Um, and essentially what I would do was just, um, I would read the article and then I would go back and I would write, um, things that I found, you know, I would kind of, uh, summarize the abstract a little bit and I would go back and just write, um, things that I remembered that kind of stood out to me about it and how I thought that it might apply to my own research, you know, um, you know, annotating kind of saying like, okay, like these are the important parts of this article. Why do I care? Mm -hmm. Something that, um, 
my advisor wrote a lot on my, uh, one of my chapters of my, my current advisor, not Jim on, uh, my lit review was why, why do you care? And I, you know, I was like, Oh yeah, like that, that's actually like a really good, uh, a question to have in mind is, uh, and if you don't know yet, then maybe just say like, ah, it's interesting. I don't know. Uh, but I think starting to kind of, uh, think about and write out your own kind of pull towards an article and why you think it might be insightful for your own research is important. I I will say a lot of people get into the habit of just reading um, a lot. And at some point you just have to stop because Mm -hmm. I think, I think that people think like the more I read, the more I'll know about what I'm doing, but you hit critical mass. Like you, you can't possibly read everything there is out there about your dissertation topic. Like there's just no way. Um, and, and things will come out, you know, and be published as you are writing. Um, and I think that you, you just, you have to, especially I I wouldn't say this right now where you're at like this early on, but you know, in, in the year in the coming years where, where you really have to start writing, you're going to feel pulled like, Oh, well maybe I'll just read articles today. Mm. And I would say (laughs) that be careful with that. If you, if you have that impulse and you know, you should write, then you, you should probably just, even if it's just for 30 minutes, just, just, get some writing done. That's Um, why I asked you that question, your perception of, if the field is still under-researched because honestly, I feel quite lucky at least right now. Now, even, even in the beginning, I still can feel overwhelmed, but at least I feel there's a track here, a very clear track where I can start down a path of reading. That's very clear. And at least at this point, I haven't been pulled in a thousand directions where I felt like I was pulled in a thousand directions almost immediately when I started to get Mm. into the effects of anxiety on performance, like that was, that was too big, especially just going from the psychology perspective first and coming back to the, the language learning, that was too much. So at least for now, again, another compliment to this chapter, I feel like this chapter is really a nice way to sort of like put the blinders on. If I'm a, if I'm a horse, right. If I'm like, this is a good, (laughs) this is a good, just get, keep your head down, like bury into this. If I, I feel that if I, if I can organize everything that's in this chapter and how it makes sense to me, um, read mm. some of the recommended readings that were in the chapter, and I've read some of them. Um, I've actually had Simon yeah. Humphreys on the podcast a few times. Um, oh, Tammy Gregerson's oh, been on the podcast. Um, yeah. So, and the other cool thing is like Jim King's done a lot of work already. Uh, yes, he has. So that's that's another kind of cool thing when you're doing a topic and the same person keeps popping up. Like, great, I'll just read everything that you're person like, oh. wrote. <laughs> right, go to their references, see who they reference, and then you'll get down like a big reference trail. And uh, you do get, I mean, even if you are researching a pretty niche topic, which I guess all of us are for our dissertations, you you will get pulled into the weeds eventually, but mm. I'm glad that you've managed to stay out of them for now. Yeah, um, yeah, it's cool. Um, well, what's uh, what's the plan? Do you have when, when the PhDs are all done? Do you are you planning on staying in uh, South Carolina? Yeah, I think so. Um, my family and uh, friends are here. I'm actually from South Carolina. Okay. Um, I'm from Charleston, which is near the coast of South Carolina, um, for anyone who knows where that is, but, um, probably not, but, um, so yeah, I, I think I'm going to stay here and, um, you know, I kind of toyed with the idea of going into academia, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to, I think, um, there might be other opportunities for me here. Um, so I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm staying here and hopefully we'll be done in October. So feeling really grateful to, as you're starting this process, uh, I won't say too much about how much I'm glad to be done with the process, but I can already say even not being done yet, that I'm very glad that I did it. And Mm. I'm sure you will feel the same way. So, 
Yeah. Um, all right. So again, the chapter is Silence in the Foreign Language Classroom, The Emotional Challenges for L2 Teachers, written by Leslie Smith and Dr. Jim King in the book, Emotions in Second Language Teaching, Theory, Research, and Teacher Education. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is... If you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.